thread. A singular thought expanded upon. Thread is the podcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. For more information, log on to Quinley.com. Hi, this is Chuck Quinley, and I'm back with Thread, episode 48, our first Thread of the new year. Sorry to be away for a little while. Uh, We were busy wrapping up Medialyte 2.0, and this school runs at least six days a week, 10 hours a day. We do as many hours in 10 weeks as you would do in a year at university, and it's just uh, exhausting but very meaningful. We had students from many different countries in Asia. And we we have confidence in their skills and in the development that the Lord did into their heart while they were here. After that, went with my family uh, for a week off and then sent the big kids back to the States to finish their university. And Kristen stayed behind and Julia, we launched Brooke. She went into high school now in America to finish her last semester and then roll into college. She'll actually be dual enrolled. And be doing some college work right now. Um, And then we went on a mission trip to Myanmar. There's not much internet there, so I'm just getting my feet back on the ground here. Uh, Beautiful country. So much is changing there and happening. And I'm I'm really happy that the Lord allows my children to see people who have such a sincere faith. Their lives are simple sometimes, and they have a lot of pressure on them. But they stand up for the Lord, and they do their very best. Uh, to be faithful disciples of Jesus. So that's that's what this uh, thread is about. We're in uh, we're still in the chapter thirteen, which is called the Little Apocalypse, and it is the companion to Mark twenty four and Luke twenty one, which has a lot of the same content but in longer form. And it's about living your faith out under pressure when your culture and your society are pressing against you, and yet. You live faithfully in front of them as a witness. You love them and you witness for Christ, although the world is increasingly hostile to you. And during that period, some people that you're ministering to will have an awakening. You can't make it happen, but the Holy Spirit wants them and he's reaching out for them and he touches their heart and they awaken to the gospel and they come under conviction and their life is transformed. So even in the pressure of a hostile world, we see a harvest of the nations that's taking place. And I get to see that with my eyes, and Jesus prophesied about it in Mark chapter 13. And so if you don't have your Bible, why don't you run and get it and come right back for Thread, episode 48, The Great Tribulation. Thread. Okay, let's dive into today's lesson, the Great Tribulation. We're going to start in Mark chapter 13. We're going to read verse 14. So when you see the, quote, abomination of desolation, unquote, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, parenthesis, let the reader understand, back to the quote, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Remember where we're at in our... In our chapter here, Jesus has 
talked about a faithful, loving church that is a, it's a faithful witness to Jesus. It's trying to reach out in love to the world and bring them the gospel and serve God with integrity. And the world grows more and more hostile against this church and begins to persecute this church uh, severely. And so the pressure against the church is just uh, as intense as it can be. And then something happens. There's an event uh, and this is a, a hinge event. It's going to change the situation and it's going to take it to another level. It's not going to resolve the situation. It's going to intensify it and take it to another level. And the key to understanding this passage is this phrase, the abomination of desolation, or as some translate it, the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, I want to get into that, but first of all, let me just say, this is not uh, a quote from Jesus. He's quoting Daniel, Daniel 9, 27. Uh, this, this phrase is in Daniel three times, always in a prophecy about the future. Daniel 9, 27, Daniel eleven thirty one, and 12, 11. Now, the, uh, this quote from Jesus in verse 14 is also found in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And we need to understand the significance of this phrase in Daniel. And doing that requires a little bit of detective work. And also, it requires you to choose your end-time theological camp. And this is not uh, an easy thing. This is where so many battles have been fought. And the reason is, when the Scripture speaks about end-time, end-of-the-world things, uh, it does it in a metaphorical way. There's an artistic flair to it. There is a prophetic uh, dreaming and visioning, you know, because it's about events thousands of years in the future that are unlike anything that's ever happened in the history of the world. And the planet has changed so much. And there's all kind of modern things that didn't exist back then. So when they open their eyes and they see this future, they're trying to describe it in the best ways that they can. So then we have to figure out what they saw by the words that they used in their prophecies. And this leads to different opinions about um, end-time prophecy, especially as it relates to the New Testament. Uh, one group are called the preterists, and these, this group believes that all the major end-time prophecy has already been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in the generation's life that saw Jesus personally. And that everything Jesus said would happen can be understood to have already happened to those people. Uh, there, you know, within the preterist group, there is a group that says it's like a half preterist. And they would say, except the resurrection of the dead and the literal second coming of Jesus. That hasn't happened. But there's another group that says, no, all of it has already happened. Um, you know, some of it should be figuratively understood. But um, so, there, you know, there's different groups within even the preterist camp. But, you know, there are some that would say that many in the ancient uh, early, early days of Christianity, like in the 300s, 400s, uh, they seem to hold to this view. And so that's, you know, where it came. Although it really, it really became more popular around the 1800s. Um, Okay, now we get the opposite group. The opposite group is the, they're the futurist. And they would say that there was a uniform belief in the early church that a major eschatological, that means end times, event was still to come. And these people that we're speaking of lived 
after the generation of Jesus. And so they're saying um, that group fully believed, and it's clear in the literature of that day, that they believe that the things prophesied were still to come and that things like Jesus coming in the clouds, that those are literal, that we will see Jesus and he will be at the level where the clouds are and will be visible. Most of the churches that I was around as a, as a boy growing up in America, I left the States when I was 24, but uh, most of those churches, uh, Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelical groups are futurist um, now, but uh, there is an understanding that a lot of people have when they look at Bible prophecy, and uh, Bible prophecy is one of those things that I am not going to fight to the death on, because there's you know there's scripture that everybody can use, and without twisting, and can understand these things you know a few different ways. The only thing that I come down on is. The Bible teaches for me a plain reading. There is a literal second coming of Jesus. There is a literal resurrection of the dead. There is a literal judgment at the end of time. And the end of time, when the Lord decides time is no more and this planet's history stops as it is, that will be preceded by a a horrible spiritual war that has always been going on, but will come to its ultimate pitch. It couldn't get any more uh, extreme than it will get. And that there will be, and I think that's what this passage in Matt and Mark is going to teach us, that these are things that we need to look to see happening. And also, if you just look around, they're already happening. Now, the other thing, though, there's a Latin phrase, census plenior. And when you study uh, hermeneutics in a seminary, they, they're going to throw that phrase in there. And it means uh, fuller meaning. A lot of things that are prophesied in the scriptures, um, especially about uh, this spiritual war, they they run in uh, in cycles. You know, for example, the one who talks about the Antichrist is John the Beloved, and he wrote the epistles of John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. This John that gives us the clearest picture and conversation in the book of Revelation about the coming Antichrist figure on earth in his epistle says to the churches, you have heard of the Antichrist and I say to you, there are many Antichrist already. So you see what I mean? You know, there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment of these things, but it's going to happen Generation after generation after generation, sort of like these prophecies get fulfilled in every generation. And then there is the ultimate fulfillment one day. But the thing said to the church, you don't have to wait and say, well, you know, maybe 100 years from now this is going to happen. Uh, I think the point of prophecy is to help you deal with the world that you are going to encounter. And you are going to encounter a spiritual war. You will encounter Antichrist forces. And this is true if you lived in 70 A.D. or 700 A.D. or 1,700 or 2,700, if the world goes that long. There are going to be Antichrist forces. Jesus will be singled out and the followers of Jesus will be singled out for pressure. Uh, and for for hate, because Jesus said it would be that way. Okay, now let's go back and talk about this passage and the way Daniel uses this phrase, the abomination of desolation. 
he describes a situation where someone will come, a person, an instrument, uh, and this person will do something so abominable. And abominations in the Old Testament usually refer to something related to idolatry. But, you know, the ultimate sense of an abomination is like, you know, there's a line between us and God. There's a line of disrespect. And people push that line all the time. But then every now and then somebody comes along with just no regard whatsoever for God. And they just come straight across that line. They go so far over. It's not even like mild disrespect. It is in God's face just daring, you know. It's the abomination. And there's coming a person, the scripture says, who just brings that abomination toward God. But it's the abomination that causes desolation. I mean, like destruction. And when you think about the word desolation, it's, it's been wiped out like a Holocaust, nuclear fire. And then it's the silence afterwards. And some of those sort of Mad Max kind of movies where the, there's a scorched earth, everything's destroyed. There's just sand everywhere. And there's a few ragged, dirty people out there scrounging, trying to survive. And you're alone. And what I think is describing is being described. The curious thing about it though, is the guy doing the abomination is not, he will be judged his day's coming, but he's kind of like a messenger. He's a messenger to the people being judged that when he entered God's house, nobody was there that they have been abandoned that there is no more uh, protection from God. There's no more shalom from God. He is not there anymore. Like when they, when they went into the temple um, in 70 AD to tear things down and they, you know, they whip back the curtain in the most holy place and there's nothing there. And so that's kind of, in my mind, that's what I see happening. This person comes with his abomination right into the face of what everybody in that generation believes to be God's uh, holy place. But because the people aren't holy anyway, the people aren't following God anyway, and they are there to be judged. And this person comes and he, you know, it's like he screams and dares and there's no God there. And it's just an announcement to them that they are left on their own. That now there's nothing, nothing left except fearful judgment. They have no protection because that's usually what God is at the last minute, even to those who follow him and backslide horribly. It's when they are at death's door or the worst thing is happening to them. It's, oh, God, forgive me and on their knees. And please, Lord, be our savior, be our, you know, be our protector and for me, the abomination of desolation is God's notice to those people that I'm gone. You know, I won't be coming back. You can call. I'm not listening. Uh, you have crossed the line. You think this guy's horrible, but he's here more horrible than you maybe in your eyes, but he's here to judge you. I have sent him to utterly waste you and bring you down because you've turned your back on me and I now turn my back on you. So Jesus is describing a situation where his church has been in the world. They have been trying their best 
to witness to um, a, an obstinate, stiff-necked people who just keep rejecting God. Then the people turn on the people of God, and those who are trying to be faithful find themselves the object of ridicule and government pressure, persecution unto death, mockery, just as they did Christ. And remember the book of Mark, the whole point of that book is to prepare the church for persecution. Mark witnessed the death of Peter, the other apostles are dying, and now he's got to warn the church that if you stand for Jesus and you walk with Jesus, you must prepare your mind for a battle that is coming. So, you know, God's people have been pressured by the world, and then there comes a day. And on this day, sort of like something clicks in the heavenlies. There is a, uh, a hinge that turns, the, you know, the pendulum swings or the tipping point occurs, how, whatever you know, image you want to get of this. But something clicks in the heart of God and in the plan of the ages, and it's like, time's up. I'm done with you. And all of the grace and the love and the reaching and the patience, the long-suffering of God toward the world is over. And there is an event, the abomination of desolation, that occurs. Now, this event, if you take the way I was describing prophecy earlier, has already happened a few times. Once, uh, Daniel's prophecy, if you look at it closely, looks very, um, very much like a... Uh, it's an amazingly accurate prophecy of events that would happen just a few hundred years in the future. And especially he describes a ruler uh, named Antiochus Epiphanes. And the guy's name that he took for himself was God Manifest. And that's what Epiphanes means. Um, he was a, uh, let me try to summarize world history real quick. Um, the Alexander the Great conquered the known world. Then on his death, things started to disintegrate. You had different people fighting for power. You ended up with the big kingdom being split uh, into a number of ways. Rome was very powerful. Another group, though, the Seleucids, maintained control of the east uh, and all the way down to Egypt. And um, Antiochus came into power. Uh, it's supposed to have gone to somebody else, but he was a very um, power-hungry, ruthless, uh, crazy person. Actually, people made a joke out of his name. His name is, he took his own name, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, God Manifest. They said Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the crazy man. Uh, he went and he came into Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Israel was under him, but he went to war in Egypt and ended up uh, having to return from that. There was a rumor that he had been killed. And when he came back, uh, there had been a revolt in, in Israel. And some of the Jews had pulled away and had attacked his government there and had pulled down the high priest and had put their own high priest in his place. Well, he came back from Egypt and he was, it was a frustrating war with Egypt because Rome got involved. So he came back, and he's just mad. And then when he finds out that these guys have revolted, and he didn't get to make his final war against Egypt because Rome stopped him from doing it with an ambassador um, who threatened war with Rome if he went any further. 
So he came back, he's frustrated, his guys didn't get to fight, and now he sees what these people have done. And so he comes into Jerusalem with his soldiers, and they killed 80,000 people. They slaughtered anyone, hide anyone they can find. They burned people to death. They kill him in every way. Then he went into the temple and sacrificed a pig and outlawed Jewish religion and uh, ordered that Zeus should be worshipped as supreme god. And put a kind of uh, leadership in that really didn't want anything to do with ancient Jewish religion anyway. And this is the period that's, if you have a a Catholic Bible, there's some books in there called the Maccabees. And you can read about some of this in those books in 2 Maccabees. Uh, It describes as 2 Maccabees 5. But this all happened about 150 years before Christ. So uh, an event like what Daniel prophesied happens once then again Jesus mentions it again and in Luke's gospel Jesus says as he's talking about prophecy he says when you speaking to first century disciples when you my first century living disciples in about the year 33 AD when you see Jerusalem surrounded by foreign armies flee the city well that happened 35 years later And there was a group of Christians, a very strong group, because that's where Pentecost happened, was in Jerusalem. There was a group of Christians in the city. They uh, remembered this prophecy, and they accepted also the the prophecies of others in the church that said, flee Jerusalem, flee Jerusalem. And instead of staying home and saying, let's help encourage our people, these armies are against the city, they did flee. They fled to the mountains in a place called Pella. And because they fled, they survived, and everyone else in the city was destroyed. When Titus came in 70 A.D., he uh, destroyed the city, and he tore down the temple after they worshipped Caesar in it. He tore down the temple, he took the stones away, and they built a temple to Zeus uh, again out of those stones. So, again, the second time we see this abomination of desolation coming on the land of Israel. Now the question is, do we look for this as a future event and is it going to be in line with the way it has already seemingly happened once in Daniel, once in uh, the generation of Jesus? And, you know, there are a lot of those that study end time prophecy and they would say, absolutely. uh, There's got to be another temple built. There's got to be the reinstitution of blood sacrifice and but see the problem is uh, Muslims have built the dome of the rock right on top of where the old temple was um, on purpose and so getting back to blood sacrifice in a modern era I'm not saying it can't happen but you know do we expect this prophecy to be fulfilled as it was in those days where someone takes a, a pig and desecrates God's blood altar Uh, Or do we look for another event in the future that is like it in spirit? Um, And I would kind of have to go to that camp. I think what Jesus prophesied in verse 14 uh, probably already occurred, uh, happened in 70 AD. But it foreshadows a further event called the Great Tribulation, which will start with another abomination of desolation, some kind of global, idolatrous, 
blasphemous last move on the part of the government. And, um, you know, that's uh, in the book of Revelation, we see the mark of the beast and the desire that you will uh, worship an earthly leader and allow his image or 666 to be tattooed on your forehead or in your right hand. Um, you know, what is the current, the, you know, the new version of the abomination of desolation? I'm not exactly sure what it is. And I think in verse 14, uh, the uh, scribe understood that he needed to make a prayer for us. And so if you read that text again, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, and then the princess says, let the reader understand. So God will help us all to see when, when this thing happens again, it will be so outrageous that we will all know, you know, that this isn't just the social security system. This isn't just uh, a more big brother form of government. This is something so outlandish um, that it, it has to be the new abomination of desolation for, for us. At that point, same, um, the same counsel he gave to his generation will apply to us. In other words, uh, your responsibility to evangelize the world is now over. Um, there's no more evangelizing the world. This is it. It's, t- it's okay to flee the uh, great persecution that's about to be raised up. And uh, let's just walk our way through this passage. In verse 15, if you're on the housetop, don't go back in your house. Don't take anything out of your house. In other words, loving your stuff in the last days is going to be a snare to us, just like it was to Lot's wife. You know, she was warned that judgment was coming on her city. The angels came to get them out of the way and the judgment began and she's still holding on to her material possessions, looking back and she was destroyed because of that. So Jesus is saying in the last days when that abomination takes place again, just take care of yourself, you know, move out and don't think about your material things. He talks about the the hardness of that. Verse 19 is where we're headed. For in those days, there will be a tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation and nor shall ever be again. Unless the Lord shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. So let's just look at those two and that'll be that'll be all for today. Uh, First of all, he says. In those days, there will be tribulation. That word tribulation in Greek is thlipsis, and it means to be squeezed. There will be the ultimate squeezing, more squeezing than has ever happened to people. Uh, As God goes on the offensive and the devil makes his last stand and the world rises up against the Lord and against his kingdom, This is as intense as it's going to get and all mercy from God will be laid aside and any holding back that the world might have thought to do as Satan's forces will hold nothing back. And this is the final climactic event in the history of the world. There's an abomination that is done, something so blasphemous that no one can doubt uh, that this is a fist being shaken at God. And now God's judgment comes on the world 
and he but his people are his special consideration uh now when i was a kid you know it was really almost uh, a doctrine well not almost you would have been kicked out i think of our church if you had not believed in a totally pre-tribulation rapture not enough to believe in a rapture you had to believe in a rapture that happened before any trouble could come to the earth uh to god's people and man they preached that so hard we were more scared of the antichrist than we were of God. And it was just, uh, I think it was just so overdone. Because then you look around the world and you say, okay, how about believers in the Soviet Union who were tortured to death, had their children taken away from them and raised by the government to be blasphemers, and they were slaughtered by the millions. They've already gone through a great tribulation. What about the church in China? What about the church in the Middle East? What I mean, the great tribulation, the, the great persecution of God's people. It's happened all over the world over and over again. So why do we believe that if you live in the West, it, it can't reach you there? I mean, everybody gets the pressure and everybody gets tested. Uh, what we're not going to have is the wrath of God on us. But the wrath of a wicked government, I think it's very possible that in any country of the world, you're going to see that. And the book of Revelation seems to say it's a global event. It's one last global hate against God's people. And the Lord says, you know, the tribulation of those days, the squeezing from God's actions and the squeezing from the world's, you know, getting caught in between all of that. Unless the Lord, verse 20, had shortened the days, no flesh would be saved. But it's for the elect's sake, which means we're here, those chosen, but for the elect's sake that he chose he has shortened the days. So even as we go through tribulation and as we go through the last day's hard time, we, we need to understand that we are under God's special care and that God's hand is on our life. He knows who we are. He knows how hard this is. Uh, people have died for the Lord from the time that Jesus came. Uh, the first century church knew a lot of bloodshed and knew a lot of pain, but it purified them. They worshiped. Their, their life was simplified. They didn't have a whole lot that they wanted to accomplish in life. They were there to serve the Lord, and that's all they cared about. Their hearts were focused. And so that an event happens that we find ourselves caught in the middle of two clashing uh, powers in the spiritual world, I think it's undeniable that that's prophesied in Mark 13. Verse 21, he says, Do not believe or run after any messianic figure despite their miracles. Verse 21. If anyone says, look, oh, here's a Christ. Here is Christ, the Christ. Here's the Christ. Or look, he is there. Do not believe it. Verse 22. False Christ, false prophets will arise. They will show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, pay attention. See, I have told you all things beforehand. So, as we look for human leadership in the last days, don't cling to any leader that raises himself up and allows others to raise him up as some amazing, specially anointed super prophet of God that no one can be, you know, higher than him and you have to go through him and he's our messenger from God and all prophecy flows through all that nonsense. Get away from that. And all this uh, adoration of Christian superstars, it's all part of that. Get away from that. 
Adore Jesus. Adore the Father. Get on your knees before God. But in the last days, it's going to be more and more important for all of us that our life gets focused. Our life gets simple. We don't love things. We don't love position. We don't look for prestige. We are holding on to the end. We want to die with integrity or we want to be alive when Christ returns physically uh, in the second coming. We want to see him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's all gear ourselves up in 2011 to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. I would love to hear from you. My personal email, chuck at quinley.com. If you enjoy the thread, would you turn in, uh, turn some other people onto it? Uh, my website, quinley.com. You can leave your comments there. I would love to hear from you. And God bless you. Until next time, on thread.